Well, I tell you, that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> Personally, I'd rather just let them keep singing uh, and not even, not even do this part. But, but there's really an important thing to talk about this morning. Uh, and it's we've been uh, going through this series about these special births. And I think most of them, if you've been here for any of this, uh, make sense. That it, we want babies that are born to rescue us from hard things or born to spare us. Um, from punishment, born to show us that God listens. Um, but this morning we're talking about a very specific birth and a very specific baby that was born to become less. And I don't know that I even know what that means. It's, it's such a weird thing. Why would anyone even want that? Uh, and, and so for me, what this is about ultimately is how we handle power and control and influence, and more specifically, how we then transition power and control and influence. Because there comes a point in in life uh, that you have to give power away, you have to transition to the next generation, you have to figure out a way to raise up new leaders. And that's been problematic for most of human history. For most of human history, when governments and nations needed to transition power, there was really only two ways to do it. You either passed power peacefully to your son, or somebody murdered you for it. Those were your options. And sometimes your son was the one who murdered you for it. It was really, really bad. See, we, didn't, we don't know how to transition power well. We don't know, leaders don't know how to become less so that someone else can become more. It's one of the things that makes this American experiment uh, that we're a part of so interesting. You know, that 200 years ago, our founding father said, you know, what if every four years there was a peaceful revolution and, and the leader just kind of peacefully ceded power to the next elected leader? Uh, and that's, that had never been done before. And it's an experiment that we still are participating in to this day because transitioning power and control control and influence, becoming less, is hard. It's hard at a corporate level. Think about businesses that, that you've seen or been a part of, that when someone builds up uh, market share and spends their whole lives investing in, in a company or a product, and, and then the time comes where they have to pass that on to the next person. That's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And in fact, most companies don't do it well. Most companies uh, fold after the founder uh, passes on, because once that original person's vision is gone, The next person doesn't know how to handle well because they weren't set up for success because the founder didn't know how to become less. Or let's make it real personal. Let's look at uh, the family level about power and control and influence. Right now, my kids are very little. I have lots of power and control and influence over them. They go to bed when I say they go to bed, and they eat what I tell them to eat. But there comes a point where if my kids are 30 years old and I'm still telling them when to go to bed and what they're supposed to eat, I've done something wrong as a parent. For to be a healthy parent and to have healthy children and a healthy family, I have to know how to become less so that my children can become more in their own lives. See, this is an incredibly important concept. How do we become less? How do we transfer power, control, leadership, and influence to other people in healthy ways so that the goals of our life and of a company and of a nation are maintained, so that our children have agency and the ability to live meaningful and powerful lives and not just one that I direct them? We've really got to figure this out. And so, to figure it out, we're going to be looking at a very specific person, John the Baptist. And so let's uh, let's see where we are. So this is 2,000 years ago. And yeah, go ahead, Carl. Uh, So at this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Aenon near Salim. 
because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. Just to help set the stage, help you understand this, John the Baptist was the biggest thing going on in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Whether you were a part of his clan or tribe or not, whether you were part of his faith or not, everybody knew who John the Baptist was. You know, emperors in Rome are hearing about this guy, John the Baptist. The, the closest modern equivalent I can think of uh, is someone like Billy Graham for the last, you know, 30 years of the 20th century. Uh, someone that whether you were an evangelical or not, whether you agreed with him or not, everybody knew who Billy Graham was. Everybody knew what he was about. That's the kind of cultural clout that John the Baptist has at this time and in this, in this culture. All right, and then what he's doing is people keep coming to him for baptisms. He's not asking for it. He's not going out and seeking converts. He's just chilling out where he is in the wilderness, and people just are flocking to him in droves. He's making a difference. He's uh, got a huge ministry, and, and he can't keep up even with the demand that people just are nonstop coming to him because they think he's got something powerful and important to say. And so this guy has built up this ministry that's changing people's lives, that's making a difference, that he's one of the most significant people in the Roman Empire, and that's a big deal. And that's where we pick up this story. And so the story continues on. So John's disciples came to him, and they said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, Jesus Christ, the one that you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. See, this is big. You know, it's one thing that this guy, Jesus, comes along and is starting to get some fame and some recognition, some power, control, and influence. But see, now he's baptizing people. Now he's horning in on John's turf. And the way you know it's John's turf is because it's in his name. He's John the baptizing guy. That's what he does. It's his wheelhouse. And now Jesus is infringing on that. And the people who would have come to John the Baptist, the people who when they were seeking spiritual growth or God's guidance on their journey or just something new to, to bring meaning and impact to their life, the people who would have gone to John the Baptist are now no longer doing that. They're going to this new guy. They're going to this interloper, the upstart person. And, and now the disciples are bringing this problem to John. All right, so let's see what John's response to this problem is. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for the Messiah. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows, and therefore I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Wow. Now take off your, your scripture glasses for a second. You know, it's, it's so easy to sit passively and hear stuff like that and think, oh, that's so nice, that's so holy. God, oh, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. Think about the fact that this doesn't happen amongst human beings. 
We don't do this. No business person has ever been happy that someone else's product is doing greater than theirs. No um, person, no CEO has peacefully passed on power and said, oh, I'm so grateful that this person is going to now be stronger, more powerful than I am. I I know I certainly am not looking forward to losing control and influence over my kids and becoming less and less of an influencer in their lives. Nobody does this. In fact, I can think of one recent example. If you guys have heard of Twitter, uh, the, the founder and CEO of Twitter is a guy named Jack Dorsey. And in 2008, uh, he's already a millionaire and he's in his 20s. And he decides to step aside. He says, you know what, I, I, I launched this company. I did big things with it. But now it's time for someone else to take control and take leadership. And so he stepped aside. He became the chairman of the board. And he let a new person uh, be the CEO of Twitter. And that lasted for all of about four years before Jack Dorsey came back in because the new guy was screwing it up. And so he had to go back and be the leader. See, when you've invested blood, sweat, and tears in something, when you've invested in your children, in your product, in your life, you don't just blithely sit by and watch someone else take it over. Because you know that they're not going to do as well as you did because you care about it more. I might not be the best parent in the world, but I sure think I'm the best parent for my kids. I would never peacefully let that go. And when you've invested in a ministry or invested in your life's purpose, you don't just casually say, oh, that person's doing a better job than I am. That's fine. You know, maybe you see a little bit of it when people retire. Uh, I I certainly got a glimpse of it with Steve Hauer, uh, who I respect so much, uh, that he did this in such a phenomenal way with Dion Garrett when he raised him up to be the new senior pastor. But even then, that was, he was ready to retire. He was ready to, to not necessarily live the daily grind of full-time ministry. But John, John's in his 30s. He's just arrived. He's, got, he's in his prime, and he's going to do big things. And in this moment where any normal person is thinking about how they're going to expand and how they're going to rest in this fame and influence and power that they have, what he says instead is, no, actually, it's time for me to become less and less. And this is shocking and weird, and we need to get to the bottom of why John would do this and what it means for us today. And so to figure this out, we actually have to go back about 30 years to John's birth, because his birth was pretty special, and that connects us now to the series that we're in as we look at these babies and their births and why it's different and why we have something to learn from it. So let's, let's shoot back 30 years uh, to in the time of Herod, king of Judea. And if you're at all familiar with the Christmas story, the character of King Herod probably rings a bell. This, guy, this guy's pretty significant in the story. And in his time, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah and his wife Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. They were good people. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. One time when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And again, this is a big deal. A a priest could go his whole life and maybe get this honor once in a lifetime and a lot of priests never got it, but he got this honor. And when the time for the burning of incense came, he went into the holiest of holies, the place of God's presence, while all the assembled worshipers were praying outside because they weren't allowed to go in. And while he was in there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. 
When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Elijah was a huge religious and cultural hero to the Israelites. And he would turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Think about how amazing this would be. I mean, just even when you have a regular birth process and when you have a baby just in the normal order of things, and yet you, there's not a parent who's ever been who hasn't looked at their baby and not projected all of their fears and all of their hopes on that child. And we look at a baby and we see all the joy and delight that we hope for them, and, and we want nothing more than for our baby to be great, to live a life that's filled with meaning and purpose. And how amazing is it that for Zechariah in his old age, long after he'd given up that hope, an actual angel comes and says to him, you are going to have a baby. He will be a joy and delight and he will be great. That's every parent's dream to have that fear and burden taken away, to have an angel promise you that your child is going to be all of these things, bring you joy, delight, and be great. In fact, it was almost too good to be true because Zechariah's response was not necessarily what you might have thought. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. See, he's wise. He knows you don't, you call yourself old. You don't call your wife old. You're old. She's well along in years. All right. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. If you were wondering, angels can get testy. Meanwhile, outside, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And, and side note, uh, this is actually a, a real problem because like, like I shared, that one priest is chosen. It's a very special honor. And, and whoever that priest is, nobody else, not even other priests, are allowed to go into the holiest spot of God. In fact, there's some cultural legend that for uh, many years, they would actually tie a rope to that chosen priest's ankle. So in case he had a mishap or a heart attack and died in there, no one was allowed to go get him. So they tied the rope so they could drag out the corpse uh, if they needed to, so that no one else had to face it. So this is a big deal. They're getting really concerned that Zechariah isn't coming out at the proper time. But when he does come out, he could not speak to them. And then they realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. And he would remain that way for months. Now, I want to pause here before we continue on with the story and just say, make one note that I was thinking about this today, which is that 
when we read miraculous things in the Bible, it's really easy first to just disregard them as myth and legend and just to say, "Ah, how does that happen? Angels don't show up. Angels don't announce births. So I know that that's already a problem and it's hard to suspend disbelief. I think there's a second thing as well that, that even if we do believe in God and angels and supernatural things, we hear stories like this and because we haven't experienced them, maybe you have, I've never had an angel show up for me for any of my three kids. And we hear that and we, we, we look at this miraculous birth story and we think that it has nothing to do with us because we haven't experienced it. This is about holy people and righteous people and, and people that are, are blessed to have a special role in God's plan. But here's what I believe. I believe that every birth of every child is miraculous. And not in some hallmark, nice sentimental sense. I I mean, literally, life is created where there had been none before. And that means that God is invested in his divine way because God is the creator and giver of life. And, And it means he's inviting us in to partner with him in the creation of life when we have children. And maybe you didn't have an angel in your own birth story, but I promise you, you had... Uh, crazy circumstances and events. You had moments of significance that mattered. And again, maybe it wasn't an angel, but it was, it was not being sure whether the taxi was going to get to the hospital on time. Or it was the, the nurses tr- telling you to push and it just wasn't coming. And, and then people prayed and, and something happened. And that every birth story has something special, something powerful, something miraculous that happens in it. And if you don't believe me, just ask any mom to tell you about the birth of any of her children. And I promise you, she's going to share details uh, and moments that, are, that were special and powerful and meaningful for her. Ask any dad about the things that had to go right uh, for a baby to come into this world. And you're going to hear stories uh, that, that should blow your mind. And I share that because it matters for two reasons. One is that we should connect the miracle of John's birth to the miracle of our own birth and the birth of our own children. And then secondly, so that we don't discard the miracles that happen all around us. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of these people. Now, it looks like they believed Zechariah and they believed that something special was happening, but how easy would it have been to explain away the miraculousness of this birth? After all, Zechariah was the only one who saw the angel. Maybe he was crazy. Maybe he inhaled too much incense. And then he came out and he couldn't speak. Well, maybe he had a mini stroke and and just lost his speech for a while. And then people do often get their ability to speak back months later after after a stroke. You You could see how you could look at even this miraculous moment and find a way to explain it away. And in the same way, we can look at our own birth stories and say, well, this is ordinary. This is normal. There's nothing special here. But I promise you there was something special there. And it matters because God doesn't just think that John the Baptist is going to be a joy and delight to his parents and going to do something great. God was just as invested in each and every one of your births. God took joy and delight in you. And your birth is miraculous because God desires for you to be great and to have a life of meaning and fulfillment and purpose. And if you can see this story and connect it to your own, I think you're going to be far closer to the truth than anyone that says, ah, my story is boring and ordinary. This story has nothing for me to connect with. So let's keep going. So nine months or so later, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. 
And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. And these were good people. Everyone around them delighted that they'd finally been blessed with a child. And so on the eighth day after the birth, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, because that's what you do uh, in this time and in this culture. Family uh, connections and your tribe matters. That's why even when we were introduced to Zechariah, how did it introduce him? Uh, by, by what line he was from, what tribe he was descended from. It matters who your father is and who your ancestors are. And one of the ways they show that is that you name babies after their dads. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. And, and so what's crazy to me is they blow her off. She says this John thing and they decide, oh, this must be some postpartum craziness going on. Uh, we, we can't trust anything she's saying or thinking right now. And so then, so they make signs to his father. They go to Zechariah, who hasn't spoken in nine months, to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. I want to try and convey this to you, that the astonishment that they would have felt. I have a good friend. He named his daughter Phoebe Crime Fighter Schaefer. And people thought it was weird. And his parents were a little nonplussed. And even that is not as big of an astonishment as these people felt. Because as we talk about power and control and influence and transferring that to others, one of the ways that you maintained a legacy then was that you gave your children your name. It was a way to say that, hey, who I am, Zechariah, I'm old, I don't have much longer, but I can give my name to my son and he can pass on my legacy and my cultural influence through my name. And so for a dad to say, I don't want my son to be named after me, I want him to be named after something God told me, this is huge, it's shocking, and it's something that no normal human being would have ever done in this time. They would have clung to power and control and influence. They would have claimed a baby's name for themselves. And this is how uh, shocking and astonishing it was to the people around them. And immediately after he did this, you know Gabriel was watching because immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. And everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. See, it's not just a hope that these parents have, oh, we, every parent thinks their kid's going to be great. The entire community knew that this baby was marked for something special. And the something special was that he was going to be great. He was going to be huge. Whatever he did, it was going to be powerful and influential and widespread. But now I want you to hear what it is that Zechariah spoke over his son. See, it says that his mouth was opened and he immediately spoke praises uh, and prophecies over little baby John. I want you to hear what he said. This is what Zechariah said. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. Do you guys see all the pressure that Zechariah is putting on this moment? This isn't just the birth of a baby. This is God rescuing his entire people from everything that has ever oppressed them or made their lives hard. This is a lot of pressure. And yet he says that the people will be able to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before God all of our days. And then here's the twist. Oh, and now you, my child, he hasn't actually been talking about his own baby this entire time. He's been talking about something bigger than even this special miraculous birth of this one particular baby, John, because now suddenly he says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, and here's why your life is going to be important, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is an amazing poem. It's an amazing prophecy. And I want to just first say, this is true for Zechariah. It's true for God's people, the Israelites. It is true for us now, 2,000 years later. Our God wants us to live in peace, free from the fear of the shadow of death. This is so important that, this is, that you understand this is a part of the Christmas message. Our culture says Christmas is about family and telling the truth and giving gifts. Christmas is about God rescuing his people from the despair and the oppression that faced them. It's about him rescuing us from death. But now put yourself in John's shoes. Think about how he grew up and remembered and heard this story. People would say to him, oh yeah, John, when you were born, it was so amazing. Your dad went off on this huge prophecy about another kid, not you. And if it were me, I would probably grow up with an inferiority complex. But what we see instead is that John was uniquely prepared to hold two things in tension his entire life growing up. See, he actually had had two words from God spoken directly over him. God had said through the angel Gabriel, you will be great. And then God said through his own father, you will be great because you will prepare the way for someone greater than you. And his whole life, John was able to live in the tension that his greatness would only be insofar as it pointed to someone greater. And in fact, he probably spent most of his life trying to figure out who that greater person was going to be so that he could live out the mission he'd been given since before he was born. And so now we come back to where we began this story. Do you start to see how John, uniquely to any person or leader you've ever heard of, was prepared like no other to let someone else become greater so that he could become less and less? And John finishes his lecture to his disciples. He ultimately says this to them. He says, Jesus has come from above, and he is greater than anyone else. 
We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. This is where I want to sit for a little bit because I think this is where the most important message of this uh, passage in this story comes in. Because on the one hand, this is a very humbling thing to believe and say. It's hard for any human being to say that someone else is greater than I am. We're not wired that way. We want to be important. We want to be meaningful. We want to be the protagonists of our own story. And and it's it's not natural and it, it grates against the way we're wired to intentionally and even cheerfully say someone else is greater than I am. It's hard to take the, your power and your, and your clout and your influence and, and to say, no, no, someone else deserves this more than I do. And so on the one hand, this is a very convicting example from John here for us. To look at our own lives and, and to look at the ways that we live them as if we are the most important person in our story and as if our own goals and our own pleasures and our own satisfaction are the thing that matter most in our lives and to be confronted with the fact that maybe, maybe it isn't. Maybe there's someone else in our life who's more important and whose needs and pleasures and satisfaction need to be prioritized over my own. It's a humbling teaching. But I got to tell you, I also think this is maybe the best news any human being could ever have. Because I don't know about you, but I've known people who have lived their lives purely and only in pursuit of their own satisfaction and pleasure and success. And across the board, every one of those people has come to the end of their lives empty and hopeless and struggling. You see it in the lives of our own celebrities, these people who should have everything that we think anyone could ever need. They have fame and they have influence and they have wealth uh, and, and yet they get to their lives and they're miserable and you can just see through their actions and through their divorces and through their scandals and through their addictions and you can just see that even though they have all of these things, they don't actually have something that's meaningful and full and joyful. And so I think it's actually good news that there's something greater than me in my life. My life would be pretty boring if at the end of it I was only ever serving myself. One of the pieces of wisdom that my dad, he was an Air Force colonel and a leader of, of men and soldiers and women, and, and he would say to me over and over again growing up, Doug, there, there's one rule for living a meaningful and a, and a happy and a fulfilling life. And it's to live a life in service of something bigger than yourself. And I blew him off because he's my old man. What does he know? But yet I kept testing that over because he told me every year over and over again this truth. And I kept testing it. And what I noticed was as I looked around at the world around me that, that this truth, this philosophy that you need to believe in something bigger than yourself was something that all of the great leaders and wise people around me believed in. This idea that there's one thing that's more important than you and if you want to, to have meaning and fulfill, fulfillment, you need to live your life in service of that one thing. That's not just a religious sentiment. In fact, even the people I know that, that are unbelievers uh, that I respect because I see that they have lives of fulfillment and influence, they've all, to a T, 
found something bigger than themselves to live a life in service to. Yeah, maybe they don't believe that there's a God that's bigger than they are, but they believe that there's a cause that matters. And they dedicate themselves to lives where they serve justice and where they fight on behalf of of victims and the oppressed. And across the board, what I see is that the people who have lived good lives, it's because there's something bigger than themselves. And I think that that's actually good news in our text, that there is something bigger than us, and that for us, we, we have a glimpse of who it is, because John pointed him out to us, that this guy, Jesus, who came and was walking around is actually the greatest thing that's ever been, greater than anyone else who's ever lived. And so we don't have to search and puzzle and doubt what greater thing we should live our lives in service of. We know We know what that greater thing is. It's this guy, Jesus, who did something so amazing. And as far as that goes, that's probably not all that controversial or shocking for me to say that. That, hey, there's a God and he made everything and he's greater than we are and so we should live a life that prioritizes him over ourselves. No one's shocked to hear a pastor on a stage stand up here and say that. Here's the part that I think is shocking. Is not that there's a God who's greater than us and that we need to become less in the name of this greater God, in the name of this greater person, Jesus. Here's the shocking truth. That very same God willingly became less so that you could have a greater life than anything that you would have experienced otherwise. The obvious order of things is that created human beings should be less than the God who made them. He is greater than what they are, and it's what John pointed to. But God himself became less for our sakes. He elevated us. And it's not just my opinion, it's actually something that the Bible tells us. Paul teaches us in his letter to the Philippians that we who who believe in God, we must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus himself had, who even though he was God, even though he was greater than anyone else who had ever been born or lived, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He became less He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. This is the Christmas story, guys. This is what we're talking about when we say that there was a baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago. That was the moment where God himself became less so that we could have something more. He humbled himself in obedience to God. He died a criminal's death on a cross. For you. And that John the Baptist had figured something out that, that we, if we, tr- if we tr- uh, trump ourselves, uh, prioritize ourselves, uh, if we put ourselves on a pedestal, we ultimately live lives uh, that, are, that are small and empty in comparison to living in something greater than us. But also then that God was willing to do the same for us. That his love for you is enough that he would give up all of the great things that made him God, that made him greater than we are, to serve us on a Christmas morning 2,000 years ago. Paul goes on to say this, Therefore God elevated Jesus Christ to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and why? To the glory of God the Father. 
See, some of you know that there's a doctrine that Christians believe that, that says that God is a trinity, that he is three persons in one, but I don't know that everyone always knows why that matters. This is why it matters. Because from eternity and to eternity, before time existed, God lived in a perpetual, eternal, divine dance. Where God the Son perpetually submitted himself and became less to God the Father. And God the Father received that and gave glory and honor to his Son who returned it back to him. And that God himself innately lived this life of becoming less so that greater things could happen. And what happened at Christmas was that God actually invited us as human beings into his divine dance. He took this truth, this truth that is a foundation of the universe that God created, and he said, I want to invite you in to this truth. That if you will recognize me, if you will become less and serve me, I will do the same back to you and I'll become less and serve you and bring you life eternal so that you can join in the delight and the love that God has had since before time. This is what God was doing among himself. This is what he was doing with us. And this is the glimpse that we get through John the Baptist this morning. That becoming less doesn't have to be this end of the story where we just sacrifice ourselves and we, we falsely lift someone else up for no reason. But that becoming less is actually the way that we enter in to the divine dance. Becoming less is the way that God lets us actually become greater than we ever would have been in our own strength and opportunity. And that if we are willing to recognize the greatness of God uh, and, and give him glory and honor, he will return that back to us tenfold. And we know that, we can trust that because we see it through Jesus Christ. We see it in a baby who became less for us. And ultimately, that is what the Christmas message is about. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, I give you thanks that that the way you operate is so vastly different and unfathomable from the way that we humans operate. That you took your own greatness as the creator of the universe and it wasn't something to cling to, but instead you gave it away freely because that's how much you loved us. And so Lord, I ask that we ourselves sitting here this morning would see ourselves as a part of your divine dance. That each and every one of us here was born through a miraculous birth because of your joy and delight for us. And Lord, that you willingly became less so that you could lift each and every one of us up to higher heights. You could bring us eternal life and you could give us a life of glory that was greater than anything that this world might have to offer us. Amen.